Thanks for going to the EDM Highway I baby your girl I'll just fucking explode Maybe when just my fist full of red poison Next time you enter my bar Another sniveling coward Another cop Asphyxiated begging This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard World I Hate. Track, Safer in Jail. They're from Milwaukee. World I Hate definitely blends some of the earlier 2000s thing I hear kind of crazy aggression into some fucking really dirty parts. This record, Years of Lead, is out July, or no, June 2nd on War Records. War Records, Andrew Klein from Strife. He put out a lot of cool shit. Chemical Fix. Etc. Etc. Check out War Records. Check out World I Hate. I love hearing fast, aggressive, really gritty fucking hardcore, especially in the era uh, era where a lot of um, metallic shit and breakdowns is all you hear. So, kind of fresh to hear an old sound getting its fucking face back up. Uh, in Philadelphia hardcore news, well, actually, this is uh, just Philadelphia and all of our friends. Greg Falchetto from New Jersey is putting on a fucking banger. Now, because of Black and Blue, he had to hold off the announcement. Well, with uh, Black and Blue going on today, we can announce Saturday, May 20th. So, this upcoming Saturday. Kenilworth, VFW, Mind Force, Never Ending Game, Bulldoze, Pain of Truth, Gridiron, Shackled, Missing Link, Hold My Own, and Negative Force. That's right. That's all one fucking show. You're a fool if you don't fucking show up. I'll probably be working and still show the fuck up. That's a wild show. Big ups to Greg Falchetto. Not only for Hold My Own and all the stuff that he does with the GB shows a couple weeks ago, but also for all the love that he gives and helps out with This Is Hardcore. This is a fucking fantastic, unreal bill. And you're not going to want to miss it. And the following day, Hard Times Flea Market. Hard Times Tattoo, Mike Barletti, Alex Bradley... Mike Hooligan, who's in Please Die, one of my best friends on earth, cool as fucking hardcore dude, uh, has an amazing tattoo shop in Northeast Philly, and there's an awesome flea market. This one's bigger and better than ever. Um, yeah, there's tons of shit to buy, food to eat, great hangs, and deals on tattoos. 
Later that night, No Pressure, which is sold out at Underground Arts. The following weekend, May 27th, Fool's Game, Pain Clinic, Deal With God, Fire in the Blood, Bankrupt. This is a, a Stucky Jam. This is a media, media VFW. Media just um, south of the city in Delaware County. And then um, following weekend, even more crazy shit. Brain Tourniquet, Killing Pace, X Nomad X. That's a Bob Wilson banger at Bonx. The same night will be Sanguasugabog, Jarhead Fertilizer, Stabbed at Underground Arts. The next weekend, Drain. That shit sold out. If you can get a ticket, you're out of luck. Um, I think we have something going on 610. I'll get back to you on that one. Um, but that's there might be a show 610, I believe. But um, I didn't not my, my notes. 623, Incendiary Volcano, Simulacra, Scarab, Underground Arts. There's 200 tickets left for that one. It will sell out. Don't miss out on that one. And then we've been talking about it, but we're finally going to actually put it out there with Bulldoze playing the black and blue ball we were holding off. But we're going to do a benefit for Kev 1, June 24th at the church. Bulldoze, Shattered Realm. All Shall Suffer, which is the members are denied. And we're adding more bands as we speak. We'll have a flyer up later this week. And, dude, this is another fucking absolute. Bob Wilson completely fucking killed it with this one. NEG, never in a game. If you didn't hear Outcry this Friday, I don't know what to tell you. Definitely going to make a lot of top 10 LPs this year. Never in a game from Detroit. Obviously, Will and them also a big part of Gridiron. Um... This is going to be fucking unreal. NAG, Gridiron, Laid to Rest, Strength for a Fucking Reason, and Division of Mind from Richmond. At the church, June, July 2nd. I don't know what to tell you. That shit's going to sell out. And um, just make sure you go into phcshows.com, phcshows on Instagram and Twitter. That's how you get a hold of us. You got a show coming through, hit us up. Um, got this festival, it's called This Is Hardcore Fest. You might have heard about it from this fucking podcast named After the Fest. And um, we're closing in on it. Just under three months. Tickets are flying. In fact, we've only got a couple hundred two-day passes left. We broke the amount that we initially set out to sell. But with the sales doing well, we kind of took some from the singles, added the two days because guys are out here trying to come to the show, which we love and support. And it's about the best thing I say about the stuff that we do. We love the support. And we appreciate everybody who does come out and pay the money and give the bands the love they do. This article will be August 4, 5, and 6. August 4th, as you heard from the Carl episode. That show sold out, but August 5th with Gorilla Biscuits and so many fucking bands. You can still get single tickets for that. And then, dude, Bane, Prayer for Cleansing, back-to-back on the Sunday, April um, August 6th. Fucking fantastic way to end the bill. Um, you get single tickets for that or two-day passes, but the two-day passes are going. And because of the size of the venue, once we sell these two-day passes out, that's it. So don't sleep on getting your ticket. We'll have more updates. TIHC Podcast or thisishardcorefest.com. TIHC Fest on Twitter and This Is Hardcore Fest spelled out on Instagram and Facebook. So tonight's guest is a very good friend of mine. Andy King came up in the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia hardcore scene. As I say later in the show, as a ch- as a kid, like a small kid, he already looked like a fucking monster to me. Giant, imposing, heavily tattooed, giant tattoo on his back. 
and he would become a mainstay in the mid to late 90s Philadelphia hardcore scene. Later on, he would go on to create Thorpe Records. Thorpe Records would be a great label coming out towards a weird part in the music industry that would directly affect hardcore punk directly, and we talk about a lot in the show, where he released stuff like Breakdown and Rikers, all this really cool shit, but times changing made things very difficult to make a small label happen in a rush of labels all doing stuff at a great time for hardcore. And his story, I don't want to say too much in the intro, but needless to say, there was ups and there was downs. And he still managed to figure out a way to have another label called Sailor's Grave, which put out amazing amount of uh, rockabilly and more punk rock and oi-flavored things. But what brought him to the show, not only just for being on Thorpe Records and yada, 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 was the fact that he's an author of a book called Failure's Rules. And I have the book here, once again, with a show in the show. Failure, Failure Rules, and this is the first author that I've had on the show, and I'm going to have a couple more. But a lot of what we do in this world, I mean, there's no person who's done a hardcore show that hasn't lost money. There isn't somebody who has gone on tour with a band and hasn't lost money beyond their, their vans blown up. And I think in our culture, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, when you win, everybody's on your team. When you lose, people walk away from you. I felt it a million times. I know how that feels. Andy's book is probably something that could sit on the side of the self-help books, but there's a lot more to it. And he draws from a lot of different sources, a lot of great quotes to kind of back up everything he's talking about. He's added some rules on the different rules of failure and how to get over them and keep pushing forward. And in a time where people are trying to enter this space and do more cool shit, what better than a veteran or hardcore punk to come on with a book and it be something that doesn't feel hokey, doesn't feel contrived, and makes you go, okay, fuck, well, if he went through all this and he's still able to succeed, then what the fuck do I have to try? So uh, this, this interview was awesome. I had a great time with Andy. And... Personally, over the last couple of weeks, I've been at my nuclear uh, job. Uh, once a year, I take a crew of cement masons up to Limerick, Pennsylvania, and we work on these cooling towers. And my days start somewhere around 4.30 in the morning, and I get home somewhere around sometimes 7 o'clock at night. So I was a little shot the fuck out on this one as far as to, like, someone as well-spoken and eloquent and just ready fire as Andy I could barely keep up mentally, but I, I wanted to get this story out for so long. I'm really happy it's out. I just wish it was, was on my A game for this one. And in fact, I even held back to release another day because I was coming home like, all right, I'll get this show out. I'll get this show out. But I didn't want to have the same kind of technical difficulties. So I went to full focus. So this gets the full respect that it deserves. It's one of my favorite modern day episodes for a lot of different reasons. Not only the fact that we were a part of Thorpe Records for the Broken Dead But Not Dead record, but just watching him come up as a person and later as a label, and then to see him have his own book is absolutely fucking fantastic. I love the guy, and I think his story is awesome. So, let's fucking go. Today is a special day for This Is Hardcore, because we finally have not only somebody from Philadelphia Hardcore coming on here, that I've been friends with for my entire length and time of being involved in Philadelphia hardcore, but also my first real author, my first real author who brought a book. Now, John came on the show, but we didn't talk about his book. You're the first one that we get to drop the fucking book. And I, I when you oh, gave yeah. me that, 
when you gave me this, I, I taped it on there. I'm like, this one's for me. So <laughs> with my you know, shitty handwriting, that's, that's awesome. Tremendous. No, it's all, it's awesome. It's a, a it's an <laughs> awesome thing. Um, Obviously, if we were just doing what you've done on a lot of different, I mean, it's, it's actually awesome to see how much YouTube coverage you've gotten for this book. But because this is the This Is Hardcore podcast, I would like to get you talking about the connection with our scene and everything that came from it. Because so I think it'll click with some people where all this goes and then where you are able to so definitively give us some great, um, actually, this is for those who don't understand, I should have said it. The book is called Failure Rules. Andrew Thorpe King is our guest tonight. Um, JJ from Cro-Mags was did the forward. But um, Andy King, not only just being a, a lifelong Philadelphia hardcore guy, created Thorpe Records, went on to do Sailor's Grave Records. And not only that, it's just a huge – if you were going to shows in the 90s and even the early 2000s before you moved out to Toledo, Ohio, yep. Andy was shirtless – and look like a He-Man character rushing through the pit. It's one of the. I remember the first time I saw him. I'm like, I didn't think. I, I really didn't think humans got as like bulky. I was like, Jesus Christ! But I mean, I was also a small teenager at the time. So, so um, let's start with the beginning. I, I I know that you lived in Pennsylvania. Did you grow up here? Yeah, man. Delco, born and raised, right? <clears throat> Havertown, right next to Upper Darby. You know what yeah. I mean? So uh, a lot of Irish Catholics in the neighborhood, that whole thing. Um, and, um, you know, was there most of my life until like, you know, college age and then moved out to Westchester. Lived there for about five years. Lived in what we called the 433 house, which was like, yeah, you know, post about this the other day. It was like this slumlord house. I paid $156 a month in rent. It was like infested with cockroaches. It was like a modern day, the young ones, right? Like I had like hippies living there. We had like... You know, hip hop guys, hardcore kids, punk rockers, skinheads, like this whole like crazy, like revolving door of, of weirdos and strange fucks and eccentrics and all kinds of crazy stories and fights and romances and all kinds of wild stuff. And it was just like a really cool like time in my life. Um, that's actually like when I really started like leaning into hardcore. So I had one roommate who was who was really into hardcore and I was always into punk rock, grew up like. I don't know, like, you know, seventh grade when my friend gave me a, you know, cassette tape with Murphy's Law on it and Black Flag and Ruin and Why Die and shit like that. I just, you know, I just switched. I went from listening to like ACDC and Zeppelin to that and it was like over, you know. But when I was at the time when I was living in Westchester in the 433 house, that's when I really leaned into it, too. It's also when I really got into writing because I was I was probably one of the only ones in the uh, in the house actually going to school. I was studying English literature, you know, and a lot of it was like somewhat useless from a real world world perspective. I mean, like my senior year, I'm doing like Alfred Hitchcock seminars and studying lesbian poetry and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it was like this confluence of this desire to want to write and this growing, not just like leaning into hardcore and like liking the music, but like finding so much value and so much alignment in who I was from like a real deep, like internal spiritual kind of sense, like, you know, songs just spoke to me. I and mean, when I was going through like whatever growing pains of, of young adulthood or going through, you know, uh, you know, economic hardships or career directional kind of like floundering, like hardcore music, man, just fucking pick me up. Like it was just like it was like the the 
the power that helped me overcome. 49 years old today, that's still the fucking case, man. Like I, I've been an executive now at the, in a fintech bank, uh, serving the fintech space, so online uh, bank. That's, you know, we help power companies like PayPal, Venmo, Chime, shit like that. So we're the bank behind that stuff, right? And I'm in like uh, product development, so I do a lot of innovative shit, check all the new stuff, all the new ways of moving money, right? And so to like pitch new initiatives, I got to get in front of like 100 executives. And it's still the case, man, where like from a, like a, a, a desire to have like a good presentation, good energy, good physicality, good oratory flourish. Like I'm listening to like Warzone or, or Madball or Terror before I go in these and do these presentations. Like hardcore still fuels my life. Right. Like through all, all the pain, the failures, everything else. And so, like, it's a soundtrack to my life. And it's really, you know, it's it's the undergirding of this book and the story of my life. And so, uh, you know, no doubt it was going to make its way into the book in, in, in a real concrete way. For the time that we're talking about here, especially with the 433 house in Westchester, that was when a, that was when hardcore in Philadelphia kind of broke away from the smaller venues and started really getting into the bigger rooms and there were so many different things all happening at once. But going out to Westchester for shows or just because people became friends with people from Westchester, you got there on a weekend. Yeah. It was it was a it was a wild, crazy college town. People were always gonna get into some fights. It was always something to do, even if there wasn't any shows to go to, was go out to Westchester. You know yeah. you were gonna get into some kind of crazy bullshit. Uh, when you cause you cause you had mentioned getting that Murphy's Law tape. And changing over from rock and roll, I always ask the same thing is not not only just how did you feel when you realize like, oh, my God, there's like another level like this. It's not doesn't start at rock and roll. It goes beyond. But also because it's constantly a trope put on by like, oh, we were punk. So we were fucked with. Were you fucked with because like you weren't like in the accepted like, hey, I listen to this music or can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, 100 percent. So. I was probably like, you know, ninth, 10th grade when, you know, like back time, like hanging out with like skateboarders and BMXers. I was like really like a BMX kind of guy. Right. So I grew up doing like freestyle stuff and really kind of like following back then uh, BMX freestyles like Pete Augustine and Craig Rosso, who kind of had more like a punk edge and more like a street edge. And like I, I, I was I, I went to Woodward freestyle camp every year up in Penn State. I was an instructor there. I was on the cover of the brochure one year doing like a wall ride stayed in the bunk with Dave Mira back in the day. So like I was really into that culture, right? And that culture blended obviously with hardcore punk and metal. I was a manager of the skateboard shop Wheelworks in, in Drexel Hill. And I was ordering from like Caroline Records and stocking the shit with hardcore punk and, you know, metal and all that stuff and hanging out with like big crew there in Upper Darby. Um, you know, some of the guys even who are like, I don't know, like uh, – still see them today shows like uh yeah. pablo is friends with vinnie paz and all those yep. guys hey. back in the day. and um you know my best friend is arab and back then he was really overweight and uh he had a big mouth and uh you know i wasn't really i really hadn't started lifting weights yet and there's these you know like jocks in the fucking neighborhood right and like i got nothing against sports it's not you know it doesn't bother me at all but back then that was a division right like if you had like a skateboard under your feet and you had a punk look like, you know, that on your turntable, like you got your ass beat. And, um, you know, there was times where we just get attacked by like 10 of them and they just beat you, beat you down. Right. And like spit on you and everything else and calling him racist names and, you know, freak and all that stuff. Right. And like, even back then, like that just built up this anger and like this just like, 
revenge mentality in me. You know what I mean? And I can just remember like just fucking listening to like Danzig and Slayer and just like fantasizing about how I was going to kick all their asses. And then I met my friend Rich, who was uh, really into lifting weights, and he was uh, he, he was really into hardcore too. Big Chromags, Gnostic Front fan, and and uh, he he since passed away. Unfortunately, uh, passed away uh, from from a heroin addiction. Actually, jumped off the Ben Franklin Bridge in two thousand six. I got a tattoo of him, you know, in memory on my arm. But he was one of my early kind of friends and influences. And um, you know, he got me into weightlifting, and he was fucking. He, people were terrified of him. We were in high school, like he was the only one in tat- with tattoos and he was big and he was a nice guy, but he was fucking dangerous. And if you fucked with him, you know, you got your ass beat. Right. And so he kind of like coming to came to our defense in a lot of ways. And and then I just kind of got into fighting a lot, to be honest with you, just out of a mechanism of um, of uh, survival and continuing to want to be my authentic self. Uh, and then there was like this turn. Right. There was about I was about 16 years old and. Um, you know, I was reading Pissing in the Jeep Pool by uh, by Henry Rollins. And, um, you know, at that time, like, I think I wore the same Motorhead shirt for like a full year at school. Like, all black, like, Motorhead shirt, black jeans. I had long black hair back then, you know, dyed black and shit. Like, and, um, you know, I remember reading Pissing in the Jeep Pool and just thinking about, like, the, the dysfunction, the brokenness, you know, of the world and seeing world through that lens and how realistic and and, and that was kind of different than the lens that I grew up with. Uh, and it was really then that I kind of like, you know, I wanted not just like the diagnosis and the prognosis. I wanted some sort of, you know, workable solution to survive in this world and not just be stuck in that lens. And it's kind of really when I, my spirituality came into fruition and I began to have, you know, uh, more of a transcendent relationship with the higher power and really kind of embraced PMA and kind of shifted my mindset and kind of got away from some of this toxic anger that was building up in me but yet i was still had like aggression still had anger always did and then over the years i learned to channel and integrate that into trying to do my best to uh put out uh you know positive or at least productive things in the world utilizing um my unique talent stack to the best of of my ability to interpret what that might be at any given inflection point i feel like there's a whole people who were influenced specifically not from the Rollins Black Flag, but from the Rollins uh, era where he did his solo, where his books were coming out. And it's interesting because I haven't thought of this in a while that there really isn't a counterpart to him 10 years later. Like there isn't someone post Rollins from the hardcore. Like no one picked up Rob no. to some degree tried with like a, the, the soft guitar and the acoustic, but Ooh. not even close. Um, Rob Lynn, like he oh, yeah, has yeah, like yeah. Mo- yep. he has smaller shows with an intimate crowd, but there's like his own like internal group. But no one ever did what Rollins did, and I think it was because by the time that people got hip to the Rollins books, all those influences that he was on were way gone. And so it's also I, I have a I have a slew of friends from your specific generation that were heavily influenced and actually like turned on to so much shit by listening to Rollins because he had already been ahead of the curve on all of that, man. Yeah. I mean, he was a huge influence on me. I mean, just from a, how he navigated self-promotion while still being real, you know, found his way to the larger entertainment sphere while still being real, at least in my opinion. I mean, you can say what, what you want about him, but you know, a guy who fucking ate dog food on tour ends up being in, in a movie without Pacino. I mean, there's, there's a fucking story there. I don't care what you say. Right. Like, 
and just seeing his spoken word shit. I mean, I remember one time I saw I used to go see his spoken word, you know, often back then. And I wrote these like like kind of like journal entry poetry books when I was in college and I did my own spoken word events around town in Westchester and I gave him one of them one time and then I met him at another spoken word event he did and I was talking to him afterwards and I, you know, oh yeah, I gave this to you before and he remembered, literally quoted back to me one of the lines from one of the things I wrote. Like, he's a real deal, you know, dude, man. Like he can, you know, so like he was a huge influence on me just to see what was possible, right? With, with bootstrapping yourself, DIY, that kind of fucking rugged individual kind of like, go after it artist mentality, right? Where you're not just waiting for some, some gatekeeper to make it happen for you. You're going to find your own fucking way, you know? And to me, like that ethic just has always followed me. That always has made a huge imprint on me. Yeah. The SST and what the whole group did to kind of like take an entire nation that didn't really have a tour routing and build the tour routing. And then the way that they worked the promotional end of SST and then what would blossom from it, that they would actually end up being the label that would start really influencing a larger mainstream music scene by putting out shit like Sonic Youth and being tapped into that entire Seattle thing that came. It all came off the backs of Henry and all those guys that would go ahead and they would load their own PA into a shitty box truck and tour like 70 days straight. And that kind of workload, that kind of like constant grind ethic it, it, I think that they instilled that in anybody who touched any of the works from Black Flag or and Henry Rollins, and so it's all. It, it makes sense how that connected with you. Now, yeah. when we were when we were, um, there was a kind of there was a moment where I was working at Mets in his basement. It's me and Jamie <laughs> Davis uh, stuffing CDs. I remember that that Met was explaining that Thorpe Records was essentially your record label and he had helped you in the process of getting distribution. And then there was a, the funny story about that I was going to bring up is I remember that me and you and, and um, met ended up at one of our friends, friends uh, distribution center being like, Hey, you know, you owe us money. Let's go. <laughs> like, yeah. he, you know, like you, you're giving, you're giving us money today. Cause you owe, Yo, yo, the label, then you're here like, yo, you're here too. I need the fucking money too, motherfucker. Oh, yeah. So it- I was working at Relapse Records at the time, and uh, that individual owed me some cash, owed Relapse some cash. I'm like, yo, can I get the day off to go do some collections work? They greenlit that. I took the ride, and uh, I, I ended up walking the motherfucker to the bank, and I got my two yeah, we were at- <laughs> got some money for Relapse too. I remember being at that bank in New Jersey and just being like, He's a nice guy, but he should fucking pay up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's dodging my calls. No answer. Look, if you can't pay it all right now, just let me know. Let's get on a plan, whatever. I don't know. Maybe it was kind of like a, a foreshadowing of, of my career in the payday loan industry that I had later on. I don't know. But yeah. yeah. That was- <laughs> so to my knowledge, I, I remember because we were friends, you were talking about working at a steel plant. I know you said you're an English major. I remember that before you ever wrote this book. Yeah. But what was the actual... Like, what was the moment where you, where you said, I'm going to put my own money up and start this label? Like, what was really like the, like the wake up point or the, or was this something that was brewing? Like, how, how did this, this, this foray start with you? Well, like I said, you know, I graduated college and um, I dropped out of student teaching. I was going to be a teacher, right? 
So I just took the English degree and like graduated cum laude. Didn't even know what the fuck that meant when I got my degree. My old man had to tell me what it meant. He's like, oh, you did good. I'm like, all right. I, I didn't know that that was what a cum laude was, right? But I, I graduated cum laude. But then like the world was wide open because I wasn't going to be a teacher. So what was I going to be? So I was working at the steel plant during college. I continued on that for a year, union steel worker. That was one of the best educations I got, man. Just working amongst the grit of with, with the often overlooked working poor, learning Spanglish, just like being on your feet. And I needed another challenge. So I decided to uh, do a bodybuilding show and got a trainer. And so it was like, that was a really like fruitful time in my life from a growth standpoint. Like that's what I did a lot of my writing was doing the spoken word stuff and was just training my balls off. I was in the gym for two hours a day, working the line, the steel plant for eight hours a day. And then at night I'd just, you know, ride around town my skateboard or whatever, just cause I was exercise. I had to be on my feet all day and uh, ended up getting my, getting like my picture of muscle and fitness and, you know, uh, did okay. in the show like, you know, got sixth place out of 12 guys, but like, that was a, a cool period of my life. Um, but from a career standpoint and directional standpoint, I didn't know what I was going to do, but it was like, even then I write about in the book, this idea of like, you know, your calling being a journey. And at, at every step, it's a matter of trying to make sure you have enough solitude in your life to hear your internal spirit voice and know what your next best step is, even if you don't know what the outcome is or where it's going to lead. And I even had a sense back then, like I knew where I needed to be at any given time, even if I didn't know where it was going to lead. So I didn't need some sort of like blueprint of some track normality of you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And then your results going to be this. I just knew what do I need to do next? And I knew like from, from, from the steel plant, like, uh, you know, I actually left there and I had this kind of detour where I was like, man, you know, may, maybe I need some sort of normal job, right? You know, maybe I need some sort of office job, something safe, something comfortable, trying to make money. So I'm going to get this job at this, um, at this uh, uh, mutual fund shop, right? So um, I was only there for about six days and I just, there was no way, man. I was just, I just had this, like, I was just re this re repelling kind of force in me just made me just realize like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. And it wasn't logical. And I had like no backup plan. I just quit with no plan, right? And then three or four days later, I ended up getting a job helping at-risk kids. And I knew that was right it. I needed meaning, not money. I thought I needed money. I thought I needed safety. Failure rule number two is nothing to safe. But uh, what I really needed was meaning. And then I ended up just um, like counseling at-risk kids at, coming out of a uh, lockup, juvie lockup, as they're integrating back into society. So I spent my nights, you know, in, uh, in the hood and in trailer parks just working with these kids in tough family situations. And that was like, that was what I was supposed to be doing that time. I did that for about a year. Um, and, uh, and, and from there, then like I was in a band, I was in two minutes hate. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, I'm like, was, was doing that for a while. Then met my, my now ex-wife and uh, ended up getting a job at Ford credit doing collections. And again, it was like, I, Oh, I couldn't believe that I had to sit there in that fucking cubicle, like an automaton, you know, and like doing these low level office tasks. I wanted to do something in hardcore, this and that. I wanted something that was like aligned with my passions. And I got laid off right when I came back from my wedding and I was delivering pizzas and I was unemployed. And in that kind of empty failure space, that confusion space, it's like, that's when like, that's when my calling for that really came to fruition. And I just, I maxed out my fucking credit cards, started Thorpe Records, drove to New York, met with Breakdown, signed Breakdown, and had it distributed through Met. And it's like, that's when like the tumult and the mystery began, right? Because it's like, I knew I was on to something. This was a road to meaning. I knew this was going to lead to other things that cumulatively over time, what I learned through this venture was going to then feed into other things. 
And uh, but it was difficult. Like, yeah, all of a sudden I had some sales, but I also had lots of debt and I still didn't have any full time income. And then I had this moment while I was at this gym in, uh, in Havertown, actually, Olympus Gym, which was like this Roid Rage gym that I grew up in. Uh, great characters there, like Al Soltrain Phillips, professional wrestler, a bunch of other people. But uh, I was there one night and I see this dude in a Snapcase shirt. I'm like, that's fucking weird seeing somebody in a Snapcase shirt here. Usually it's like people in Zuba pants and gorilla wear and shit, right? Yeah. And I'm like, I start talking to him. Turns out he moved here from Colorado. He was an attorney and he, you know, didn't want to do that job anymore. He was friends with Matt Jacobson who owned Relapse Record and he, uh, he, became VP of Relapse Records. We became friends. Within a few weeks, I ended up getting a job as running the wholesale department of Relapse Records, who was just at that time moving from Lancaster to Upper Darby, which was literally like five minutes from my house in Drexel Hill at the time. And it was very providential. It was like, it was fucking meant to happen. Like this was like, it was like this pivotal moment that changed the tra trajectory because I'd already started the label. I was already kind of like doing it crazily and tumultuously, but knew I needed to do it. And then this happened, like it was just, supposed to happen and then all of a sudden i had some stability some income and it was vertically integrated with what i was doing at night and i was getting basically a paid education in the music industry by day working at relapse that continued on when i moved to ohio instead of working for lumberjack too so it was like you know the path was like revealed incrementally as it needed to be for me to receive it as i was going along yeah uh with thorpe records when you started it met was on a completely separate idea of how labels were still running at that time. And I know you'd taken some advice and put a lot of money in and didn't see as much as returns. I have to imagine. And, and for those listening, this when relapse, when relapse really started popping out here, it was exactly, I, I can't tell you the amount of my friends who were working there. And yeah. it's exactly what you're saying. It was like its own college education and how to work, how to work in the record and the record business, because relapse for as big as they were and as profitable and as well known as they were, it was still run like any DIY record label had ever been, you know, yep. small offices, small teams, people you'd see on South street, no limos, you know, it was always like, oh, no, the not most, at all, man. it was always punk rock shirts, you know, like it was, and, and the, and the revolving door of people that work for relapse in Philadelphia, hardcore and metal is fucking incredible. So, I mean, and I, I do think that this is what the world shows us. You want to call it Providence. You want to call it a higher power yeah. when, when you're floundering, when you're stuck, there probably is signs that you either have to be observant for, or sometimes it falls right in your face. Like this is the next place for you to go. So it, it actually worked out well. I did not know. I know you, obviously I know you went to Toledo, but I never knew where you made the connection. And I have to assume, was it because you end up signing with uh, lumberjack distribution or how did you end up deciding to make the move just to get out to Ohio? No, I wasn't even with Lumberjack yet, but they were, I did business with them as I was working at Relapse. I became friends mm. with Mike Dayton, you know, who was in Permissions yep. of War, played Ramallah, and we talked all the time. We became friends. I was like, yo, Relapse is having some hard times. They're making some cuts, and I was getting laid off, but was still, you know, amicable and friendly with all those guys, and they gave me a recommendation. It's like, is there any spot for me at Lumberjack? And it was between Lumberjack and Revelation, I was talking to, I guess it was still, was it Vic at the time? I don't remember. might have been Probably Vic. Probably was Vic and, back then. Yeah, and then I had an interview with Jordan Cooper, and it was like I could have worked at either one, but the salary was the same. And as you know, money goes a lot fucking farther in Toledo, Ohio, than it does in LA. I had a absolutely, like, I had a baby and a wife, and so I was like, "Yo, I can buy a house if I move to Toledo." Like, and um, so I ended up taking the job at Lumberjack, and uh, at the time, man, like we bought the house. No, we were waiting for the house to settle, but I already took the job at Lumberjack. So my family was back home 
and I was driving nine hours to Toledo every Friday, yeah, every um, every Sunday night to go work Monday through Thursday for twelve hours there, and then drive back to to Philly on Friday, go deliver pizzas on Saturday night at this pizza shop next to Rex's in Westchester, just until like two in the morning, just to make money for for tolls and gas to get back to my job in Toledo. Did that wow. for three months till we got the house in Toledo, and then moved the family to Toledo when we were there for for seven years. Now, at Lumberjack, things were changing. I remember specifically, I felt like the way that the the inner punk rock, hardcore, metal-ish world, whatever you want to call it, there was a lot of different things all working for and against itself. Like, you ended up falling into getting the opportunity to release some really big records through your connections with Lumberjack, but they also were kind of like the, the spoils of war where... Lumberjack was pissed off at another label, like, fuck you, we want to help you get this. Did you learn anything in all your time at Lumberjack on the do's and don'ts of how to deal with business? And does it ever apply anywhere beyond Lumberjack? Or was it just like focus on just like the records and all the different crazy shit that goes on with distribution, wholesale, marketing, and all that? I mean, I learned a ton of stuff there. I mean, just the the, the grind of how to like really, um, you know, market market anything right bring a product to market and all, all all the touch points that from end to end right but like you know what you're talking about from like the finance standpoint like lumberjack was in a regular habit of advancing money to to certain labels right i mean whether it was hydrahead or whether it was Deathwish or whether whoever it was right so there was a point where my label started to grow where they're like all right you're at a point where we can start doing this for you so that's where that really came in um, but that was customary. That 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 was kind of all around. Um, you know, any sort of drama that happened back. Then, I mean, my memory's fuzzy and all that stuff. But like, you know, I, I don't. Really I'm not so the- much worried about the drama part as much as like you learn something more than just like what a textbook. Oh, I work at this record label because hardcore is kind of organically still like a folk community. It's not like completely all like you had like you said like office autonomons. There was tons of people out there. Oh, yeah. Just like you were talking about, like black b- black hair, earrings, T-shirts, not exactly corporate America, rock and roll music yeah. selling shit, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was just like, I mean, it's just like relapse. I mean, Matt Jacobs, at the end of the day, on a Friday, exactly. would put a beer on everybody's desk and announce over the mic- you know, the microphone, the loudspeaker, you know, if anybody had any marijuana for him, right? And like Lumberjack, <laughs> like they brought the dogs into work and like, you know, and it was a very vibrant, like creative scene. Like you, you met a lot of people who, who went on to, to do things of, of note, right? Like. You know, already mentioned Mike Gayton, the bands he was in. Dustin, who's drummer for Walls of Jericho, now is in uh, Corey Taylor. Um, I was there when the owner of Lumberjack, Dirk Hemseth, his sister-in-law was like 17, and she got the first uh, demo tape for American All-American Rejects. I'm not really into, but, you know, they ended up signing them from that and selling them off to Warner. They became huge. And, you know, just bands on tour coming through and hanging out. Andrew from Against Me worked there. And like, it was just, you met a lot of really, really cool people. So from a networking connection standpoint, that was really cool. But just from like a community standpoint, like, you know, you're working every day with people of a very similar mindset, a very similar kind of like, you know, outlook on, 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 uh, on music and life. Now, at what point does the lumberjack thing start? not being for you and where do you move next i remember there was a time where everything was great and then i remember there's a moment all my people from lumberjack started just disappearing and running away from it 
Wait, wait, wait. They lumberjack ran away from you? <laughs> you no, that? my friends. Like all the people I worked for, little by little, it was like, all right, this happened with lumberjack, this happened with lumberjack, and it kind of like piece by piece started pulling itself away. Well, it certainly wasn't any utopia, right? So like any yeah. office, there was, there was like, there was some things that were, you know, were, you know, head scratches, right? In, in terms of uh, how it was run and leadership and, and that kind of thing, right? And so, um, you know, that was there. But my reason for leaving was really just that I was so overextended where I was burning the candle at both ends, where the label started to take up so much of my time. Like I had young kids. I'd put them to bed at 10 o'clock at night. I'd work till 2, 3 in the morning, get up at 7, go to the gym, go to Lumberjack, you know, repeat every day. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And I wanted to make it go with doing the labels full time. Real estate was cheap in, in Toledo. I mean, I literally had like an 18 by I don't know. I forget how the size, a good size office and this nice office building with the fucking doorman and shit was like $235 a month. Right. So it's like, I'm going to make a go at this. And I went full time and it was like, okay, for a while. But then like a year in, I had overinvested in a bunch of records, Ramallah, Drowning Man, uh, some others. And, um, you know, I started running into some turbulence for being overextended. And, uh, you know, at the same time you had the digitization of music and then you had Tower Records collapse. That was 25% of my sales. And then returns started coming in, which means that's debiting your account plus adding on attendant fees for each return. Um, and and, and I, I was still like kind of hanging in there. I ended up, I started Sailor's Grave Records because I really love like street punk and oi and psychobilly and shit like that. And I wanted to create a, a label that just really, you know, wrapped all that into one aesthetic. And so I started that in 2006. And that's when I was still full time. I was still doing Thorpe. And I got a different distribution deal. I went, I went to, to Koch distribution for that. And I got a big advance. So I got some juice. I got some money, right? But I, I, there was still some underlying financial issues there. I was still kind of running and gunning, right? And uh, didn't have a whole lot of redundancy and backup for that, which is, you know, was kind of a part of, of, of youth and, and learning business and being out on your own and that kind of off-road entrepreneurial adventuring kind of thing, you know? Um but uh, so it, it didn't last. I was only able to do it on my own for a couple of years. And then I had to kind of put it on ice, let things recoup, uh, actually got into so much overextension that I ended up having to go through like a personal bankruptcy at the time. Um, it didn't, didn't bankrupt the labels. There was really nothing sellable at the time uh, to, to, to do that. Uh, long tail IP rights value, obviously, because I went on years later to, you know, revive them both and release records on and on. And even now, like still working with bands like the Coffin Cats and Flatfoot 56, the goddamn Gallows and bands like that. I haven't done anything with Thorpe since 2009. So that really is a catalog label at this point, you know. Um, but uh, I mean, I just learned a hell of a lot through through that period of time. Uh, it was it was a wild, wild time. Do you think the digitization and the loss of tower was not something that just affected you, but it affected a lot of people. And do you think that ultimately should have been a sign that it was time to find um, greener pastures or are you like, what do you look back and now feel about it? No, seeing all that coming. And if you had a chance to um, just like lay it out for someone who's not as so, um, I guess the best way to put it, someone who's just a young hardcore kid is like, I think I know what they're talking about, but I don't know what they're talking about. Because I remember the moment when you went from buying CDs to 
wait, I got to go and get this thing and click on it. I just pay 99 cents yeah, and I get a song. Like, can you give us like a small background of like how that affected, yeah, yeah. where that went, and then like if that was basically the reason why you had to keep moving forward somewhere else? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, obviously like more people were getting music digitally, the less they needed to go into stores. And like in the industry, everybody's like, oh, it's just, they just viewed it as froth, right? It was just like extra exhaust. Like, man, it's five to 10 percent of your, five to 10 percent of your sales was all iTunes was for a while, right? But it was like, you know, it didn't have a, a, the shipping costs, didn't have, you know, you didn't, you're not fighting for space. It was, it was D to C, direct to consumer. It was, it was a very different animal. And this is long before streaming. And nobody knew really where it was going to go. They all still believed in this nostalgic idea that, Everybody was always going to have something physical in their hand and be able to look at the liner notes like, you know, we grew up loving and and, um, you know, that just didn't prove to be the case. And I think there was always a sense that, you know, it was going to die. Right. The, the physical format of CD, at least. Right. Vinyl obviously has its its proper place from a collector standpoint, from an enthusiast standpoint. But um, and I just it just started to happen quick, happen quicker. And it was more like the retail was tightening faster than even the digital sales was growing i think um but for me it was also like you know i went out on a limb going on my own uh without really a proper kind of backup plan for down down times right um and that's one thing i write about in my book the thing one and thing two dependency failure rule number four is really actually all about how to build that because i didn't build that back then and that was one of my biggest lessons and in my life now, I do that properly in a variety of ways. Did you get pushback at all, like in the house with your family because of like what was going with the labels? Or was were you just like focused on, hey, fuck it, that didn't work and I'm gonna push forward and she was behind you? Like how did the the shape shifting of your like your whole entire life, how did that fuck with you in your own family life? And how did you keep pushing on? I remember hearing you say something about Early on as a kid learning to become a bodybuilder, you had to learn to work through the pain to build. Did you like rely on stuff like that to get you through? Like explain that whole process of shifting out of Thorpe and into something else. Yeah. And I mean, look, dude, one of the reasons I wrote this book is just is the Winston Churchill quote. Success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm, man. And like I always fucking had that. Like I just had this internal locus of control no matter what was breaking down around me. Yeah. You know, I'd lick my wounds for a little bit. I might have some you know, some time of like, you know, being, you know, in despair, but that didn't last long, dude. And, and part from spirituality, part from like, you know, hardcore, just part from my aggressive nature and PMA, like I always had this enthusiasm is like this endorphin of the spirit that was just, I was going to find a fucking way. Like I enjoyed the challenge of the, the underdog challenge almost. Right. So like here I was and trying to shift into another career, you know, as I kind of put the labels like really on ice to recoup, really. They recoup for several years before I started putting out records again. Like there's still revenue. It was just paying off debt that wasn't discharged in bankruptcy, suppliers and, and all those type of things, just to keep certain relationships in place and try to be as honorable as possible, right? And, um, you know, um, I ended up totally reinventing myself, like went into financial planning. All of a sudden put on a suit each day, still had to like kill what I ate, had no salary and made some friends in this gym I went to, which was kind of a high-end gym in Toledo, lots of entrepreneurs and, and, and uh, you know, high-end professionals, lawyers, doctors, all that stuff. And like, 
they looked at me thinking I'm like a street thug because even like back then in Midwest, like Toledo, like people didn't look like me there. And, you know, it really was a thing like, you know, like tattoos are very normalized now. They weren't then. I mean, even in like 2006, 2007, 2008. Right. And uh, ended up like networking a lot and like building friends with these very wealthy people. And they were very benevolent and generous and introduced me to people. I ended up building, starting to build this financial planning practice for a couple of years until the 2008 financial crisis hit. And being in the auto belt, Toledo, you know, as goes Detroit, so goes Toledo, you know, it uh, started contracting and people were cashing in accounts and everything else. And then I was in another kind of like down uh, spot where I had to figure out what I was going to do. And that's when I came back to Pennsylvania, man. It's like fucking Elizabeth Chains, Land of Kings, you know, like came back to yep. Pennsylvania. It was like, that's why, that's why I love that song, man, because in many ways, like moving back to Pennsylvania again, still not knowing what was going to happen, like it fucking rescued me. Came back here. Ended up getting into online lending. Things really started to flourish and I had a partnership in online lending business, bought a gym. Uh, and then those things went through turbulence too as my business partner went to prison and I had to do all kinds of crazy stuff. So it was a wild time. <laughs> I have to ask if this, because, you know, obviously I'm a Union Conquer guy, never went yeah. to college. Just by having that bit of college back then, is that a prerequisite alone enough for you to pivot? from one industry and one professional situation to another, because usually from my perspective or someone who doesn't know how it works, I would assume for you to walk into a gym looking like a thug that they would kind of cred check you like, well, what's your degree? Like it was yeah. it hard. Was it hard to swim in their world? Not being from that. Or did you, how did you manage that? And then like, cause that's always been something that I've been curious. Like, how much does those degrees really matter? Because I know what you're capable. I know your acumen of your abilities and all this other stuff. How did you get into that world and then end up where you're at up until 2009 when everything started falling apart? Yeah. So like that pivot going into that world, right? Like, um, I don't know that the degree really helped me get into that world so much. Maybe would have been like the, the last lubricant to, to seal the deal. Like you, I think you had to have, I don't even think you needed a degree to do what I did in financial planning. Maybe, but it didn't really matter. It was all the networking, dude. It was all the networking. It was networking in the in, in the gym with the high net worth individuals. And then I hung out at the cigar lounge a lot in Toledo, high net worth individuals there. It just became really good friends there. Like cigar culture has constantly been a thread uh, from a brotherhood and a, a networking standpoint, very similar to hardcore. I mean, like the brotherhood of people I know in the cigar culture, it's very identical to hardcore. Like certain lounges I go into and just just people in that world, cigar personalities. And this is it's the BOTL, the Brothers of the Leaf, you know, and it's like they ended up becoming my clients and introducing me people because I hung out and smoked cigars with them when Thorpe was still full time. Sailor's Grave was full time. I worked out the cigar lounge a lot of days, you know, and um, you just get close to people. And then the same thing when I moved back to Philly. That's how I, I really met, I met who ended up being my boss and mentor in the fintech space where I've been, I've been there now 10 years from Cigar Lounge, you know? So it's like, it's really, I think it's just all networking, man, and just being your authentic self and being hungry and curious and adaptable and, and, and wanting to go after new things while still retaining your old identity and your old interests and finding a way to integrate them and become a wider person in the world. I like this excerpt from the book. I don't want to read too much from the book because I think sure, read whatever you want, man. I, I, I like I think that when I listen to podcasts with people with authors and they read so much from the book, sometimes they take the big gems out 
And then, you know, from point to, from gem to gem, the middle is sometimes less exciting. I did not write this book to attempt to seduce you with some iteration of authority illusion. While I know failure well, I claim no authority on the subject as an expert. I generally do not trust anyone who claims to be an expert on something. True experts are loath to identify as such. Their expertise is most marked by a humble acknowledgement that they are always in constant discovery of more expertise. So this is not a book loaded with clear, permanent marker answers. No one has a patent on the secret sauce of the value of failure. Rather, this is a book of visceral observations, vulnerable recollections, introspective findings, and overarching themes. Erasable, malleable, whiteboard stuff. Cherry pick what is useful for you. And I find that because I, I, I at different times, have had uh, lots of time to work at patching concrete. I, I got really into the Audible audiobook series. And I found myself getting led to all the different, like the, the rules, time tens, and all these books. And every time I would listen to this, I felt like the person who was involved in this book decided that they had the design plan for everybody. And I like what the most I like about your book is everybody who can read this will take what they want. And that's what the cherry pick line really stuck with me. You can cherry pick something that'll work for you. You're not sitting here in failure rules telling people, if you follow these five things, you're going to be the king of the universe saying like, this is what I did. This is how you maneuver. This is how you can change things. And this is my experiences, which to me as a book, I, I don't like the, I won't even want to call this a self-help book or like a motivational book. Yeah. But I think if people are looking for things, inspiration or just, Hey, here's a hardcore guy who is in a great place, but he didn't start off in a great place and he's been back down and up and down. I really do think that the way that you phrase that is really key because I was reading it through and reading it through. And I even read it again this week just to mm. catch up and remind myself on stuff. But I find just telling people like, Hey, I don't have all the answers and I'm not an expert. is something you don't see in books like this. Yeah, man, I'm just a regular fair like anybody else, right? And like I wrote this book just as much for me just to like crystallize my own thoughts and my own stories for myself and from a personal legacy standpoint for my kids and my grandkids just to understand what life I lived and what I think I learned, not even in an absolute sense, right? I mean, yeah, I write in there too in the introduction somewhere about like, you know, even I will probably fail to adhere to these rules. Even I might over time change my mind on some of the things I write in here. But that's the discovery process. It's a constant curiosity. Like you have to constantly question what you think you know. Doesn't mean you don't know anything. Doesn't mean you can't have deeply held beliefs. Um, but you have to be open to changing them when you have new discovery, new information. You can't close the door and close your mind and think you've reached a point of having figured it out. Because we all know that's bullshit. Ain't nobody have it all figured out. No, in fact, a lot of the book is drawing different references. It's like your Winston Churchill quote. Throughout the book, you have, I mean, I don't know the amount of research, but you put a lot of research into quotes. Yeah. And, and to draw from so many different sources, not just to solidify your point, but let them speak for you on the topic. And I, I the whole thing I kept going is like, how did he decide? Like, it's just, it's just weird, but that's the way I'm, I'm half autistic here. How did you decide to number the rules? And what was your, in the planning of the book and the process, once you realize you're writing this book, how did you break down and make firm rules in a situation like this where you're saying, hey, I'm not an expert, but hey, here's my, like, was that a hard thing for you? Or you just all just like, fuck it, by a flow conscious state, I'm just knocking it out. This is how I feel about it. 
Well, it revealed itself over time. I mean, like Hemingway said, first drafts are shit. My first draft was shit. I started writing it in 2014. Uh, first loose notes in 2013. Iterated over the years. And as I iterated, I realized, all right, this is a lot about me. This needs to be reader facing. Made it more reader facing. Made it more something that the reader can get something directly out of it, whether they give a shit about me or not. Then it was like, all right, I need to layer this in for more texture with a wide array of people from different walks of life who from each lesson in each chapter uh, had some similarities in the story. So everything from billionaire Sarah Blakely to Henry Rollins to quotes from Aristotle to, you know, 10 pin bowler, Tom Smallwood to, you know, Rodney Dangerfield to, to whoever it might be. And just really gave it that wide texture. And it, you know, it's for entrepreneurs, creatives and authentics, right? Authentics is a word I kind of made up, but I think it sticks. I think people know what I mean when I say that it's people who took unorthodox paths, found their way into their, their own success path, however that's defined um, in a way that wasn't laid out for them ahead of time. They had to kind of go through the third door, as Alex Benign would talk about, right? Like, And, um, you know, so over time, I just started looking at the chapters and I was like, all right, what are the common themes here? And I realized, all right, well, these six that these six chapters kind of all roll up into this idea. So, okay, failure purifies, failure rule number one. Failure rule number two, nothing is safe. That comes from a Lenny Kilmister quote, interview in Loudwire after the area on the Grande terrorist attacks where they're like, hey, Lemmy, you know, you know, the, the venue and the authorities uh, wouldn't let you play. If they did, would you have played? And he's like, fuck yeah, nothing is safe. I would have played anyway. You know, that whole thing. But I ended up writing 27 chapters based on the fucking Lemmy quote, right? Building on that theme. Um, and so, yeah, they just kind of revealed themselves over time. And the structure seemed to make sense. Like, you had the overarching rule, a bunch of chapters underneath that rule. Each chapter had its individual lesson that's still connected to, to the larger rule. And then each chapter had this anchor quote. Uh, you know, I would layer in, you know, the premise. I would layer in a personal anecdote and then an anecdote from, from somebody else, a virtual mentor, um, uh, like the people I just mentioned. Uh, and um, I actually had like eight rules of failure originally, but it was just going to be too big of a fucking book. So I scrapped the other three and just... Yeah, let's figure out what were the five most important. And I think from a bookend standpoint, like failure purifies really is the start. That's when you're confronted with a failure event. That's where you have the opportunity to make the right choice, to metabolize it correctly and find a way like Nassim Tlaib, the author of Anti-Fragile says, not just get up from failure, get up from harm, but actually grow from harm like a hydra exponentially. You know, and that's failure rule number one. And then it's bookended by failure rule number five, which is you are not your failures. Decouple your identity from your failure events, learn from them, deal with the consequences and the messiness, be responsible, but don't attach that to your identity. And I often talk about Elgin James and, you know, the paradoxical, um, you know, moment when he's, you know, getting sentenced for the extortion charge for the thing with Mest. Uh, at the same time, he's getting this deal with universal pictures. And, 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 and you know, he's the mentee of Robert Redford and does, you know, wrote Minds MC. Uh, spin off to Sons of Anarchy and FX, but like that moment, it's like he peeled off the old identity, man. Like he he was not this you know, quote unquote ethical failure from from the FSU shit or whatever, and became this different person. Chased after his calling journey, had the courage to reinvent himself and align with his most unique talents. And you know, so I just think those two are very very important. The ones in the middle are important too, but they're almost like you know. The, 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 the road the road there. The other two are kind of the endpoints. Now, I know you had journals and all that. Did this start as just some scribblings, or did you 
wake up that morning and just go, I'm writing a fucking book. Like how did how did those first words and if they even ever meant it to the book, how did those come about? And did you look at them and go, they're not good enough? Like how did you actually sit down that day or do you even remember that? It was like the muse just hit me, like Stephen Pressfield talks about, you know, author of the, the War of Art. Like there was just times where like I just sit down, light up a cigar, pour an Irish coffee. Six hours later, I got 6,000 words on a paper. And later on, I organize it later, you know, and edit it later. But shit was just poured out of me, man, because it was so real to my life. Like I, the, the, the concept came to be on this beach walk and I was listening to a playlist, had like, it's like Ace of Spades and Hard Times for the Cro-Mags. Never even imagined that John Joseph would end up writing the foreword at that time. You know, it was years ago. And I wrote these loose notes actually on like a digital sticky note on my uh, on, on my computer. And uh, I just certain phrases I would just put down. I had the Churchill quote. I had Divinity of Purpose, the Hate Breed song. Just wrote that down because I knew that was going to be a part of it somehow. And some other things like real like inputs or song lyrics or quotes or uh, philosophies or ideas that actually helped me through very, very difficult times. I mean, whether it was divorce, being estranged from my son for seven months, whether it was uh, losing businesses or my best friend going to prison or whether it was like being on food stamps or whether it was fucking, you know, uh, abandoning my house, like all this, all this shit or going through bankruptcy, like whatever it was, like there was forces that helped me. Like the universe was conspiring to give me that solid, you know, philosophical and spiritual undergirding to keep going. And this is a collection of that. And this is piecing that all together and trying to put it out in the world in some way where, like you said, people can cherry pick it and find a way to inform their own path for their own unique uh, benefit. I feel as if the thing about this book specifically, and as I've read a bunch of them, I've listened to even more. I find myself being able to go back and checking different things out because of the, not only the quotes, but the people in it. But I, I like when you talk about nothing is safe in mm. failure rule too, because I, I mean, I'll tell you from experience in 2014, this is hardcore had suffered like a, a legit financial worry. And I climbed the fucking bank of uh, Ben Franklin bridge. And last minute, someone pulled me from literally mm. being up at the top thing. Cause I don't know how to fucking handle it. Are you Years serious? later, yeah, absolutely. And um, in August of 2014. And in that moment where the world is like literally crashing down at a thousand miles an hour and you're like, I'm going to hit this ground and I'm not going to survive. It is such a stupid thing mm -hmm. to think about because since that time, which has now been almost nine years, I've had similar things that you're talking about. Like, you know, um, in, in marriages and just in life, there's things that just completely fail. This article is actually in the bet, one of the best spots it's ever been in since then. And it is because of stuff like mentors and friends and the people yep. that got around me. Yep. But I think that there isn't enough books that celebrate and push how to make failures not seem like the worst idea because this is what, this is what stops people from ever starting. You know, like for me, it was very hard to get me to ever be on video. <laughs> like I still have to really? figure out how, yeah, I, I hate even looking at my face. I'd rather just always, I'd rather look you at somebody good. else. You look, good, I, Joe. you look fucking great. What are you talking about? Yeah, all, 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 the, all the years, you know, I, I just, I got a face for radio, you know? So I never really, <laughs> I never really wanted to be this, but in seeing the way that people engaged 
with the Paris Mayhew video we had with 10,000 views. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's triple, that's triple what our regular um, audio podcast gets. And I'm like, I'm missing out on getting more people interested in these people's stories. And I think about imposter syndrome a lot. And I just think that failure rules does something that none of these books do where instead of celebrating and be like, fuck yeah, you fail, you break down the whys, the hows, and how to push back. And your story has so many, like you said, so many different trials and tribulations. Anyone listening, you got to read it to understand that it's not just like, oh, this one bad thing happens. Like, all right, well, everything's going good. Now everything's bad again. All right, we're doing great. Now we're in the now we're in the financial crisis. And every time you always figure out a way to pivot, either link up with people networking wise, you get mentors. And I think the resounding thing is even though failures rules is a great like mod like a way to like motivate people like, hey, you're gonna have a failure, keep fucking moving. Yeah. But also it's a great blueprint on how to push forward if you do have some. And also it may stave off your worry to even start a project because a lot of people don't do shit. Yep. Out of pure fear of failing in the first place. And I know there's tons of shit. I'm like, I would do now. Nah, you know what? I don't even feel like going through. Like, I don't need someone going, yo, did you see him? That sucks, right? Yeah. He sucks now. You know, I think about it all the time. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you outlined. And I, and again, I, I initially, when we were talking months ago about having you on, I realized like we would have talked about half of your book and then people were like, why the fuck did I buy the book? I just heard Joe talk half of it. But I, I so I like to like just broadly say that this book, if you're if you're afraid to fail or you've got ideas and you're worried that they're not as good, you gotta you gotta read this damn book because there's so much shit that in a, in a hot aha moment, like, you know, just thinking about back from when you put out Punishment, the band that we did. You know, yeah. like there's so many small things that because, as you said, just like see to your pants, fuck it, I'm gonna do it. I don't care. Like that's how we were, you know. Mm -hmm. You signed you 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 put a we had a <laughs> we had a deal with Met. It, you know, he, I don't feel I, like I see metal all the time, so I don't have any hard feelings with them. But, but yes, I, I was too, I was, I was too young to understand what I was walking into and what, and what we didn't get on that end. And, you know, too damn hype and cord kind of rolled out not too far after punishment had that LP. So we yep. came to you. It was because, well, yo, Andy's our boy. He's from the city. We want to work with someone like us. And you put your ass into us and we tried to tour as much as we fucking could. And our vans are blowing up. Members are changing. And I remember, you know, for 22 years old, I'm like, this is the worst thing that ever happened. And now I'm thinking, like, someone came to me today and said, Joe, this happened. I would have, like, oh, that's not even the biggest. You know, do you have a house? Do you have a job when you come home? Like, this isn't the fucking end of the world. Mm -hmm. I think something like Failure Rules written by someone like you is earnest. I don't think that it's, like, um, like reaching to, like, be in this self-help category. You're actually legitimately giving true wisdom for people yeah. that want to do shit, but don't, don't want to deal with the failure end of it. Yeah. I mean the self-help thing, I'm not going to like push back on it. If people want to call it that, that's fine. But that's not what I was going for. Like this is just something that was in me. I had to get it out. That's it. You know, um, you know, you talk about imposter syndrome. I mean, I have like, there's a line in the book where I say, you know, don't fake it till you make it, believe it till you become it. Fuck imposter syndrome, man. And it's like from like that movie uh, Boiler Room with Ben Affleck, you know, like act as if whatever you're doing, no matter how, how many gaps are in your abilities or your or your confidence, fucking go in and act as if. And that's a mentality I've taken in life when I've been in rooms and doing things and having conversations where I am the least qualified or the least experienced. 
I still find enough nuggets to go in there with at least some sort of semblance of confidence. And then I blow it up, you know, and I just, I find a way to move forward and act as if. And then before you know it, you're not faking it till you make it. You believe and then you become, you know, and that there goes imposter syndrome out the fucking window from that mentality, right? Um, you know, but you, you talk about the nothing is safe thing. I mean, that's what I learned. Like, even those that take what they believe is the safe path, I think often if, if they were honest and you had kind of a, you know, a, a window into their, their psyche or their soul, it's not really safe because it depends on how you define safety. It can be safe on the outside. You can have all the accoutrements of a nice life, you know, a nice house, nice car, family, all that stuff. Nothing wrong with that stuff. That's great. That's the ideal. That's awesome, right? Um, had that at many points in my life, you know, right? Like I got a lot of nice things now. It's great, but I'm not attached to them. Enjoy them, but I'm not attached to them. Um, but I think a lot of people, if they're not doing something that lights them up somewhere in their life, even if it's not full time, they have to find a way to go after the things that light them up, the burn inside soul on fire is a soul fucking alive. You have to find those things in your life and go after it, no matter how you do it to align with your authentic self and, and, and really be on the path of your calling journey. Those that suppress that, those that muzzle that, whatever that is for them, like, Again, I'll quote Stephen Pressfield, he talks about this. Like those people, I think, will, they'll suffer some sort of sickness, psychological, emotional, physical. The, the, something in them will be off kilter. Paradoxically, there's people I know whose their external life, their material life, even some of the relationships look like a complete fucking mess, and they are. But because they're going after something burning inside of them, there's this wholeness to them. There's this sense of being alive, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing that is so infectious and attractive. And they're the people that I admire. They're the people that I write about in the book. They're the people who are, you know, not playing it safe, not playing it stupid, but realizing nothing really is safe. So you might as well go after the things that burn inside because nothing is fucking safe anyway. When you were writing this, you had to have got a lot of it out of them you had to do a whole manuscript before you even started shopping this or were you just writing cathartically like how did the process go from you jotting this stuff down to what would end up being on my uh table right here like break us down with where you're like i'm writing and now i think i have a book or did you write going i'm going to do a book and then did you have any mentors or people to help walk you through the process of getting the book going so i had a lot of ideas this is my second book i wrote a spy novel that came out in 2015 Blaze, Operation Person, Trinity. So that was my first book. So I had a little bit of experience writing a book. Um, this was my second one. So I really thought about the structure. But you have to edit it so many times. Again, like it changed multiple times over the course of seven years. Um, and then I got it to the point where I was like, all right, I've self-edited enough. I think the structure is good enough now to get it to a team of editors. And so I, I didn't actually get a publishing deal i chose to hire and, and keep the rights and hire an agency scribe media huh. lion crest publishing who did david goggins book you can't hurt me goggins hired them james altucher the, the well-known podcaster he used them the scene to leave intellectual wrote anti-fragile he used them they're a high-end publishing company for self-publishers and they they all worked at big publishing houses and now they help self-published people do all the marketing do all the you know editing they've you know full team 
And I engaged with them, and they were absolutely freaking amazing. It's owned by Tucker Max, the guy that wrote, wrote uh, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. It was a huge bestseller. Uh, they're in Austin. I went down there and met the team and everything, and they're just, they're, they're just tremendous. So they really helped bring the book from good to great. Um, and, um, you know, they have tiers, right? So Lion Crest Publishing, which is the label that Goggin's book, first book was on, and Altucher and some of the big names, like, they only give you that label if they really like the book and you agree to, for the most part, without compromising yourself, except most of the edits of their team. And uh, I made it into that tier, so that was pretty cool. Um, but even that process, process took a year and a half from end to end to work with them on all the different elements. They helped me build my website. Again, they did the publicity. I also hired somebody in the music industry, Aaron, or excuse me, Austin from um, Secret Service PR. He used to work at Epitaph. You know, he had worked on campaigns for everything from Converge to Social Distortion to Weezer. Now works with a lot of metal bands on his own firm. But I had him kind of work the music space, and then they worked more like, uh, you know, the entrepreneur, self-help, wellness, those type of those spaces. And I, I've been having success in each vertical, uh, as well as the scar culture. I mean, it's only been out seven months. I've been on, I don't know, damn near like 50 podcasts and media appearances. So, um, you know, it was just a very you know, kind of edifying process. Really learned a lot. That's a fucking absolutely genius idea. I've always, I've always thought that there had to be a, a way that you specifically had some connection, but also like this isn't too much more than releasing a record in, in some ways. And I think that all the prerequisite information you gained before that just leaned right into this. It's fucking fantastic. And that's an aha moment. Cause I was, I was expecting a completely different story. I didn't know how that ended up coming out. That's fucking even cooler. Yeah, I still own the rights. It's still my book, but I hired an absolutely super professional team. Sunk a lot of fucking money into it. But like, I, I believe in the message and I'm not looking for some sort of immediate return. I want to do this for a long time and write other books. And I'm trying to build, you know, I've been reading this book by Arthur, Arthur Brooks re recently called From Strength to Strength. Um, and it talks about, you know, the first, your working years, your, your your kind of hustle years in your life being like this fluid intelligence. You're learning, you're shaping, you're accumulating potentially if you're successful. But then in your latter years, you go in the second curve, which is crystallized intelligence, where, you know, you might be slowing them down a little bit. You know, your, your direct skills and output might not be as important as your synthesized skills and wisdom and trying to put that out into the world. And like, I really feel like I'm trying to build my second curve, which for most people starts in the 50s. I'll be 50 next year. And this is this is this is that mechanism for me. I want that's what I want to do transition into over time here as as I'm able uh, is to just write and, and speak and, and do media stuff and anything related to this type of messaging, uh, failure rules and anything that stems off of that. Uh, but I want to do things that are, are meaningful, could potentially help people and keep me learning and keep me engaged with interesting and audacious people in the world. I mean, just think about the job that you took after school was over. You were dealing with those kids. You yeah. don't seem like someone who's completely mercenary and like, Hey, I'm chasing this. I know that you have that kind of empathy to help other people. And again, with this, with this book and the way that it leans, there is no clear path for the person when they're reading it. It's, it's completely open to sub subject to whatever you are going through, or you may have more for me. It was like more hot, like, damn, I wish I would, I wish I would have read that, you know, 10 years ago, or I should have taken this path just even as much as five years ago or two years ago. 
there's a lot in there, and I wonder, did you store like how do you physically build this content around the mass of your own writing? I know you said it before it was a lot of research, but like I can't picture all them quotes getting like fingered in. Like it's <laughs> there's so much to draw from, and I I only have so much time, so like. I yeah. used to be able to. I used to be able to. Uh, I know who Ben Affleck is and stuff. If it's really not important to me, like I don't remember actors' names. They're not important. Like I don't watch sports. That yeah, kind yeah. of shit. Like yeah. focus on what I'm focused on. I read a lot of history. I, I I read a lot of my own books and stuff like that. But when you're talking about this movie and that movie, I'm like I don't even remember that. <laughs> like I had to like actually at different times go wait. Like what is he talking? Like I had to look for the references. <laughs> how did how did you organize that in a way that? Because there was just so there was so much, but why I bring it up is it broke things up, so it's not a wall of just. But here's how I did this, and this is what I did. Yeah. It breaks it up, and it gives you these great pop references, so people yeah. can connect to it in a different way. Like, oh, okay, I get it. And then once I was looking through, I'm like, like light bulbs are going off, you know? Yeah, I mean that was intentional. And people ask me like, how much research do you do? I mean, honestly, like. I didn't have to do a lot because this is just stuff that already influenced me and impacted me, whether it's hearing somebody in a podcast and following somebody, reading a book, music I like, you know, philosophy I was into, uh, you know, spiritual stuff, you know, like whatever it might be. It's already in, my, in me, already informing my life. There's very little here that I had to go proactively research specifically for the book. Most of it was either in me or I had to go back and reference it and pull the book out of my library. Like, you know, like it was already in me right it's already been accumulating here for decades because these are the, are the things and the influencers and and the ideas and 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 uh, virtual mentors that were already kind of being building into me over time and this was just a you know a, a synthesization of that have you thought of taking this into a live scenario where you're able to kind of interact in a smaller crowd and not only just be able to speak from the stage, but give some some feedback. Have you ever thought of that? Is there like an idea to take this into a mentoring opportunities? Because there's a lot of influence that you have from all these different people. And I think that you could actually turn this into something because there are people who, if, and again, I hate to keep using the self-help space and the podcast space, yeah. but like not everybody's going to be able to walk up and get the ear of a Tim Ferriss. And not every people even sure. know what it is, but there's so many different people out there in that kind of space. But I think that you, because of the tattoos and you have the approachability and the ability to speak well, can reach out to people who normally wouldn't connect with that world. You know, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's kind of what I was going for. I wasn't going for the anti self help necessarily, but kind of like, like I'm not Jocko Willink. I love Jocko Willink, but I don't wake up at four 30 in the morning. I work out in the afternoon and I smoke a drink every day. You know what I mean? Like, like that's not who I am. I'm just being myself. Right. But I, I still feel like I have a lot of things that I, 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 I can help people with. So I do have like speaking and coaching services that I, that you can see that on my website, andrewthorpeking.com. Um, I'm, I'm working on some events right now with some corporates where they're probably going to have me in, come do some speaking and some coaching uh, from some people in like the learning and development departments of certain companies that read the book. Newman University is now going to have failure rules as required reading for the entrepreneur minor in the fall. They're literally that's like college, awesome. students, college students are going to be forced to read hate breed lyrics as part of their fucking career. That's fucking awesome. And that's, that starts in the fall. Um, and I didn't even do much effort to get this. I'm going to do a concerted effort to build on both those threads, like university stuff and just um, speaking at corporates 
but then also like the cigar culture, man. Like I'm going to be doing events in cigar lounges with the books. I'm going to the, the PCA trade show in July in Vegas, the Premium Cigar Association. I got a booth there. I'm going to be selling my merchandise, Soul and Fire Supply Companies, a merch company I started that echoes the themes of the book. And uh, there's a cigar line that was designed by Craig Holloway, you know, who play, plays in Cold and Life, yep. Cold Life, and did artwork for Agnostic Front, Wisdom and Change, and everything else. Hung out with him in Austin and his wife, great dude. And he, he did the, the cigar line. So I'll be selling that there. And so there's these tentacles that I'm building off of it, like long term. Uh, and speaking and coaching is going to be one of the big things that I, I want to go into. But like you, I work a day job. So I can only like, like, kind of like a tortoise, like I'm phasing my way into it. It's a multi-year plan. Like this year, I'm just focusing on, do, focusing on doing as much media as possible until that's exhausted, uh, doing the PCA event, getting a booth that this is hardcore, thanks to Chris Absolutely. Eck, send, sell shit there. So like those two events uh, and trying to master the algorithms on Amazon. So I have a company that's doing the Amazon ad campaign for me and trying to keep those algorithms going. So the sales are, are good. Not it like comes up. Really it comes up. Like a book at this stage. This this comes up in my Amazon stuff because I have Audible. Oh yeah 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 yeah. And because I check out books, I usually go through and I, I, I you know like with the with the old old hardcore punks books. There's, you could always get them through Amazon, and there's yeah. like a books and stuff like that. So I'm always looking and looking. You know, and search it and failure rules is one of the suggested ads all the time. And I'm like, I got so that Amazon. comes up for you, even though you didn't buy it off Amazon because I gave you a copy. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's working. That's the idea. Yeah. yeah I was right. saying, I, I, and I'm like, and the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh shit, he's on Amazon. It's fucking great. Yeah. There's so much, so many like things that uh, intersect with hardcore culture in the way that this whole thing is coming about. Yeah. And, and it's a surreal thing to hear you say, hey, I have this plan. It's like, to me, it's like, all right, you're the you're the band that's like built up of all like the legacy dudes. This is your book. And now you guys are setting up, we may do a tour. Everyone likes a record. Now we're gonna do a tour. That's it. And it's so and 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 because of the I mean, obviously, you know, um I don't just work in this space, but for the, the listeners, this is exactly what it sounds like. We, you know, we got our record going. We're getting ready yeah. to do a couple shows. We're not ready for the full world tour. That's right. And it's and it's surreal because obviously it connects back to your entire history. Uh, I, it's a weird thing because I, obviously John's written books. Different people in hardcore have written books, but I think a lot of times it's leaned so much in the hardcore culture that mainstream person picks it up and they're fucking lost so i mean obviously let me kill mister and henry rollins and all these other things that you're drawing in people are going to connect to that better than if you're quoting jimmy from murphy's law you know or like hey how about this show like it's it gets lost and i don't feel like this i don't feel like you lose anything in the hardcore world with this book but i also think it opens up a wider net for you well, that was the idea. Like, it's true to who I am in terms of hardcore being an absolutely real perennial force in my life uh, that has informed uh, my decisions and my strength and everything else. So that's represented there. But there's also a whole lot of like, um, you know, multidimensionality to who I am and how I, I've lived life and continue to. And that's in there, too. So, you know, my mentors span a variety of spaces and that's all in there. And it's the interesting thing is I did a podcast yesterday morning, this guy in the UK, he doesn't know anything about hardcore punk. And he's like, I never knew that that kind of music had these lyrics that were that deep and that meaningful. Like he was like totally at the like, curious now about like the heart of hardcore metal and punk because of the lyrics around the book. Right. And so like, 
that's not scaring off the normies. And I think the hardcore and punk crowd loves his book and isn't scared off by it not being just purely about hardcore punk, right? That was kind of like the line I wanted to, to straddle authentically. Well, that's and it's good you said authentically. I think that term authentic really resonates with me. You know, like I I got lucky as a in my mid twenties that as I was at probably at the closest to doing real jail time and not being able to turn my mm-hmm. life around, that I went from touring and working construction when I wasn't touring to getting into a union job. And I was around some squared away men that weren't like, Yeah, just go punch that guy. Like, yeah, we don't do that on this job. You know, like I got a real different mentorship. Yeah. And and actually bizarre because like within a year or two of getting that job, my, my own father passed away, which I didn't have mm-hmm. the greatest relationship. So like I had a second wave of, of, you know, like adult male, like, hey, this is how we act. Yeah. And it changed the entire way that I was looking at things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, I had the SWAT team at my house and all this crazy shit. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, my entire focus is this is hardcore fest getting my ass to work by 6 a.m. and making sure I show up. And now looking at that 17 years later, now I'm able to go to nuke plants and run a crew of men that are older than me because they respect where I'm coming from. This all shit happens. And I think that I I lay this all out because even though I'm not in the – I don't feel like an entrepreneur. When you said authentics, that actually resonates more because it's like, you know, I authentically wanted to do a podcast – but I had that imposter syndrome. But then with that captivative, what else are anyone supposed to do with the pandemic? Yep. Let's start. Let's see what we could do here. And it was never commercially about promoting this as hardcore fest. It was like, well, just like anything else, I can't name anything. So I'm going to name it this. Yeah. And, you know, things I do, I do it authentically because I want to do it. I never, I've never yeah. done, I've never played a song I didn't want to play. I never played a show I don't want to play. And I think that term really will drawing the normie people to bring back to the point is like, I like how that the UK guy's like, Oh, I didn't know about that. It's like that authentic is going to relate to him the same way as me. Cause I never felt like an entrepreneur because yeah. 90% of what I do is cause I want to do it. The show breaks even good. If the show makes money, that's cool. We'll probably lose that money six months from now on something else we like, you know, and, and the, the key is to continue going. But I think by creating and putting that into the space, it does draw in from more than one area. And it's something that I don't see a lot in the hardcore punk because it's always like it's, you have a great way of also meshing your story into these lessons where, you know, it's not a, just a biography, but it's like, here, this is like a roadmap of here's how I went like this way. And then when the world fell apart, hey, here's how I pivoted. It's, it's actually really unique in a lot of ways. And like I said, I, I could scroll through my audible list. Like, no, he didn't say it this way. He didn't say that, you know, like it, it's, <laughs> You're in a really good place for what you're trying to do here, and I just hope that you, if anything we could do for you, obviously going to be selling our book at this hardcore. But like, is there anything that we could do to help you continue to push this? Because now in hardcore, there's a lot of younger kids who look at me when I'm like, "You need to get a union job." They're like, "I ain't doing that shit." There's a lot of new yeah. authentics coming around, and the probably one thing that they need blueprint wise is hearing it from an older guy who's been through a lot of the ringer. And is, I, if you're in fintech, to me, that sounds like you're on top right now. <laughs> to me, you know, like a yeah. concrete guy, yeah. you'd be a really good way to mentor a ton of new authentics that are coming from the hardcore scene. That's part of my goal, right? I mean, a part of my my vision. Um, but, you know, just thinking about your story, right? Just thinking about the, the three words in the subtitle. So I'll hold the book up again. The subtitle is, you know, uh, for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics, right? So those three words, 
you say you're not an entrepreneur, but the way I define entrepreneur in the book, you really are. It's really about whatever you're doing, whether you whether it's defined by ownership of an entity or whether you're an employee or whether you're a creative or a solopreneur doing things for the sake of it, not for the money and only making money when you're able just to keep going. Like that's still part of what how I would define entrepreneur. These words really kind of all blend together, entrepreneur, creative and authentic to me, because it's about doing what you're authentically supposed to do, trying to identify your unique um, way of being in the world and your unique talent stack, uh, trying to be, you know, as the author, Srinivas Rao, who actually is now kind of mentoring me in the book world, his book, um, Only is Better Than Best. It's like, how can you be the only, which is what is uniquely you, and make that imprint wherever you are, whether you're an employee, whether you own a company, uh, as a creative, uh, as an authentic working in a concrete job, like, you're being Joey, man, and you're not hiding any of that. And even as you grow and change, you're integrating your old ways of being, you know, appropriately into your new ways of being as you grow. And that's really what it's about. And it's not like a clear thing. It's like, it's a spectrum. Like there's days where you're not going to feel authentic. You're going to feel like you have imposter syndrome, but you're really not. You're just in a growth spurt where it feels awkward. So it feels inauthentic, but you're growing into a new authenticity all the time. It's always evolving. I do a video about this too, where I kind of talk about the duality of Gene Simmons from Kiss being on stage, fucking blowing fire, and then being in the boardroom in a suit and speaking academic English, or Jocko Willink in the black t-shirt and lifting weights in the podcast, and then in the dress blues, or the duality of like, you know, me being who I am, and then putting on a suit and, and, and working in, in fintech. And it feels inauthentic, but it's really not. It's a matter of your evolving authentic self and, and retaining different spheres of your authenticity. So, um, you know, I, I think of those words very, very differently, entrepreneur, creative, and authentic. Same with like success. Like I define the word success in the book very differently. Success is not like this optics of, of, of materialism and accumulated wealth and, and uh, you know, having it all together necessarily. Those things aren't bad. I'm not knocking those things, right? They're, they're, they're good outcomes. But it really is about aligning with that true authentic calling journey even if sometimes you have to literally induce chaos in your life to get there that's the name of the game i'm going to leave us off with this uh reading of from your glossary of terms again there's so much in the book and instead of going ahead and just hitting page by page and then you being like why the fuck am i gonna buy it he does have a glossary of the terms as he just said where he redefines and I, I don't think reappropriates, but kind of position them in, in a way that you wouldn't normally think. And it really did resonate with me. Authentic. The term authentic is used in this book's title and within the text of it is a noun that describes one who manifests their being in the world in a way that is congruent with their true inner self. Striving to be an authentic is a goal that requires spectrum perspective as in, as in identifying the nature of your inner self in a moving target and attempting to manifest it accurately in a world that's just as fluid and difficult. Hence, an authentic strives to be one with their degree, uh, their inner self as much as possible. The unauthentic will experience various degrees of success and authenticity spectrum depending on the fluid nature of the variable circumstances. I've never read from a book before. I'm trying to read around my microphone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to me... And thinking like that's exactly what you said. It, it is authentic. You know, like um, when I go on a job site, I have a hard hat. It says McKay. Uh, the, right now, there's a guy on the job who knows me from my hardcore alias. Mm. We He can come over and talk to me about it. He's not going to talk to me in front of my men while I got to tell them what to do about hardcore shit. In fact, we had an apprentice up a couple yeah. of years ago at the nuclear plant. He's like, 
Do you ever hear of conversion? I was like, no, never heard of them. It's walked away because it's not. This isn't when we talk about this shit. Yeah, and I'm exactly. and you're not gonna you're not gonna come to me as I'm supposed to give you guidance in your trade, and you listen to me and buddy up with me by talking. I don't I don't I don't give a fuck about sports. So if you start talking about sports, I literally just turn off. My brain just starts going. Yep. Me too. What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat later? (laughs) Like, I have no idea. Like, you can't win that way. And it's not that I'm all business. It's because I have to stay focused and I have to stay completely impartial. So if this kid's talking to me about converge for an hour, I don't need to feel a different way if he's fucking off on me. You know, and that's kind of how I looked at it. But again, I I think that you did write this book with a lot of different ideas. But the the things that stuck out for me and the things that really resonated with is – that term authentic and the ability to leave it wide open for interpretation and not just be like the, I have the golden key that's going to fix everything. Yeah. And I think anyone who's listening to this that doesn't pick up this book and doesn't try to understand where we're coming from, you're going to, you're going to miss out on something because I could have used this book in 2000. I could have used this book in 2004. I think every four years you could have did a different a- a- addendum and there yeah. been more to it to help me along my way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I even read, I read back at it now because I've been so deep into promoting it. I forget what I wrote. And I read back at it now. I'm like, whew, I wrote that. I really need that like right now with what's going on in my life. I need to be reminded of that idea, that principle, that way of being, that way of orientation. Like to, it's as much of a blueprint for me ongoing as as anybody else that might find value in it. Like it's, it's, um, I wrote it as much for me as for anybody else. I think you're the first person who's, written a book like this that has actually admitted that you're in the same spots. And that's the other thing I was just saying, like when someone reads David Goggins, they just think David Goggins, he may hurt his feet, but they think he can run through the fucking moon by, you know, I call Jocko our Lord and savior jokingly, (laughs) but also seriously, our Lord and savior, you know, I do get up for work four 30 in the morning when I have to go because it's concrete. But at the same time as I don't have that, I don't have that inner, I don't have I've never had that body building gene in me because everything we've always done was work. So it's like, God, I'm already right. sore. Yeah. You know, right, like right. I'm already, I'm already trying to figure out a way that I can get to some jujitsu classes after we pour concrete for 10 hours. Yeah. And I'm reluctant to say that the older I get, it's either go up, be able to perform at work or do a little bit better in jujitsu and work's going to win out. Cause that's what pays my bills. Got it. Yeah. So when hearing that from you, that as you read your own book back, you're like, fuck it. You know, I could have used that information. I think one of the, the failing points of self-help, is there's come like almost like this, um, not a preaching mentality, but that there the people reading it aren't approachable. You can't ask them a question. Like you can't even walk. I mean, Henry Rollins is literally awesome first generation punk dude. All of them guys are crazy in their own way. If you went up and talked to Henry Rollins, you don't know what you're gonna get. He like talk to you for five minutes or five hours depending on what you say. But you have four. You have the first four words to get to him, and that's what it's gonna be. Uh huh. I'm gone. I did talk Whereas, about this book a little bit. I gave a copy of the book and I emailed uh, with his, uh, I don't know, assistant. assistant or whatever. Yeah. And like, he rem- you know, like, so we, we had a little bit of a chat on it, but yeah, you're right. There's, there's definitely an unpredictable response you might get from anybody like that. Yeah. So aside from seeing you at this hardcore, how do people get this book? How can people interact with you? And then what else do we need to say about this right now? Yeah. So I'll hold it up again. The book is failure rules with a kind of fist in the air exclamation mark there. 
The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics. You can find it anywhere you get books online, including a kick-ass audio book that was read by Jason Asang, who was an actor on the show Twin Peaks on Showtime, does an awesome job. Killer Urge and Cadence did justice to the text. Uh, you can go to andrewthorpeking.com. No E on the end of Thorpe. From there, you can get me on Instagram at Andrew Thorpe King, where I'm most active. Also, YouTube at Andrew Thorpe King. I have a lot of produced videos there that kind of bring the ideas of the book to, to life in a different way. Uh, and my merch line, Soul and Fire Supply Company, which echoes the themes of the book, too. You can get there from there. And uh, there's also a soundtrack on uh, a playlist soundtrack on Spotify and Apple Music with the actual songs that I listened to when I wrote the book and songs that actually helped me through many of the hard times and failures I write about in the book. I mean, everything from Billy Bio to Madball to Terror to Hatebreed to Black Flag to Coffin Cats, all kinds of shit on there. So that's really good. Go check that out. A lot of people said they've actually listened to it while they read the book, which is cool. That was kind of the intent. Um, so, yeah, definitely go check out the book and uh, check out the other stuff. Andy, man, it's incredible to sit here and we're talking about your book and all the successes you've had. And I've, I've, I've stood there with you, like we said. I stood there with you in Mets' basement. I stood there with you. We were chasing down our friend for some money. I was at the office in Toledo with you. Yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen a lot of this, man, and it's incredible to see you standing to me on the top of a of a mountain that's still going to keep going, man. And that's, thank you for wanting to come on the show. Sorry it took so long to get on there. I, I like my no worries, time man. management has not been the best with how busy we got this year. But you're on it, especially during when we're pushing this, this is hardcore, which is great. Yeah. You're going to be there, so we'll be able to hang out. And just thank you for everything you did for punishment. Thank you for everything you did for hardcore. There's so many amazing hardcore releases that you brought to the light of day. And I, again, I, I, the older I get, the like I have a, a need for like this, another voice, like another mentor, another angle to look at it. Yeah. And this book definitely hit hard. And I hope that people who are interested, check it out. I love that you have it. Is it on audible? The audio book? Yeah. It's on. Oh, audio that's audio. fucking awesome. It, the audio that's books. Awesome. Everywhere. I mean, the books available anywhere. Books are online. It's distributed. Everywhere. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, all, all your links will be on the TIHCpodcast.com. We link everybody directly to the website. And just uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for being persistent. And thank you for continuing to kick ass and representing the hardcore scene in all the different worlds that you have. I appreciate it, man. And before we sign off, I have to kind of echo a little bit of that back to you, man. Like, you're actually, you're one of my hard times heroes, for sure. Like, seeing you in the pit when you're 15, when you had the ponytail and the rancid shirt, to see you where you are today, <laughs> and like, the way that you've just like balls out, like made shit happen from punishment to shattered realm to fucking, you know, wandering in the woods a little bit metaphorically, you know, and then coming back through the hard times and, and, and uh, you know, uh, everything you described on Danny Diablo's pop podcast the other day with him calling your mom <laughs> and all that shit, like coming through chaos. all that and coming full circle here to being a fucking like, you know, blue collar hero waking up so early, fucking pounding concrete all day and still having like, the ability to organize one of the biggest, most impactful, pure hardcore fests that occurs every fucking year that so many people get excited about, so many people look forward to, so many people look back on, uh, build memories, get strength from, uh, you know, build friendships on, like what the value you're bringing. Don't ever underestimate that. It's so, um, it, it, it's inspirational to me. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, uh, I think the fucking world of you, essentially. Andy, you're one of my uh, great mentors in life. So hearing that from you will stay with me forever. Thank you for saying that. And um, I look forward to hanging out with you at this hardcore. You got it, brother. Have a good night. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one. Again, everything out there is 
worth taking a look at that he put out there in this book. A lot of cool shit, a lot of great quotes. And I think there's not enough people in hardcore who admit when they fail. Because failure is seen as like like a, not only like a stock that's going down, but something that's not worth anything anymore. And I've seen it a million times. I've seen bands who come up, and when they start being sloppy, you you know, their friends abandon them. There's always a shit that goes on where people walk away from things that aren't doing well as they should have been or when they used to be. And then it's always been a bizarre thing to me. So I think it takes a lot of balls to write a book like this. And I think a lot of people trying to take steps forward should listen to someone and see what it takes to live, push things forward, fail, and get back up and do it again. It's a very unique principle because most people only talk about success and not realizing what happens in failure and how you can turn it back into success. Again, a lot of great shows in Philadelphia. Go to the social media. It's phillyhcshows.com. On the Instagram and Twitter, as phillyhcshows. A lot more shit's going to be coming up. Um, great the amount of sold-out shows we've been having. It's because of the support of the kids and all the bands just really whooping ass out here. And, you know, this is po- a podcast named after this hardcore a fest, and we are under three months till it's happening, and the tickets are selling well. We're not sold out yet, though, so don't just give up, but don't forget about us. We're going to have a lot more cool flyers, and we just reprinted the 2006 flyer. Our good friend Sean Gallagher, who passed away from brain cancer, he did the artwork back in 2006 and actually hand-screen printed the first ones. And people have been asking about them for years. And I'm going to start with this one. If this, if we do have the fiscal interest to sell even like 25 or 30, then I'll have the 2007, which has never been done. We never did one. I have an artist right now sending up ideas, and we're going to keep it in the same vein. We're going to put it on sale, and they'll probably have 2006, and maybe by the summer when the fest happens, 2007 available. And Hopefully, we just continue and we release all the flyers again because I, I don't want to get to the point where it's a shoulda, coulda, woulda. I like these posters. I want to see them in circulation. And the nostalgically, just looking at them gets me excited for everything that's coming forward with This Is Hardcore. But there's so many young people as it's been 17 years since the first one. I think it's cool to re-release them. So keep checking that shit out on the This Is Hardcore social medias as things come out. All right. Thank you for the support. Next week, we have a fucking awesome guest as well. Uh, We've been banging them out and recording them more often. And with the schedule that I have now starting to slow down for a bit, we'll be right back and kicking some ass. So thank you for supporting the podcast. Again, doing my best here. Working class guy, doing the audio, doing the video, doing everything, but now scheduling myself. Thanks. We just jumped in. She's helping with the scheduling and things are moving forward. So thank you for the support. I loved how many people enjoyed the Carl episode and I hope you guys love the Andrew one just as much. Take care.